3 that Peter writes, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Praise God that we have a living hope in Jesus. This morning we want to talk about the, the hope that we have as we look forward to things that are to come. And so we'll be in Malachi chapter 3 as we do that. But I want to take a moment first to dismiss our children who are fourth grade and under to head upstairs with our leaders for kids' crew. So they're going to make their way to the front along with our leaders, make their way upstairs. As they're doing that, let me encourage you, turn your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. We're really going to catch the very last verse of Malachi chapter 2 and then pick up in the first five verses of Malachi chapter 3 as we're studying our way systematically through the book of Malachi. It is a busy time of year, no doubt. You, you feel the busyness that, that comes with the holiday season and all the things that are happening and all the events that are piling up on your calendar, no doubt, just like, uh, just like on my calendar. I, this week I was, uh, I was busy. It seemed like I, there was one moment this week where I was early on and I was thinking about all the things that were going to happen this last week and and, and, and then looking forward to things that would be coming this next week. And I just thought to myself, this is, this is nuts sometimes, all the things that are happening. It was the reformer, Martin Luther, who said famously, he wrote, I should say, famously, that there are two days on my calendar. He wrote this day and that day. And that day, of course, he was speaking about the, the coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It's a common theme in the Old Testament scripture, this day of the Lord. And this passage of text that we're going to look at in Malachi this morning refers to the day of the Lord, the day that would be coming. And, and it's an important theme for us to consider. Last week, we studied Malachi chapter 2, and, and we looked at verses 10 through 16 together, and, and, and I, I talked a little bit on the front end of that text about what a, what a tough text that was to preach, and it was difficult because of just the weightiness of the subject matter. Well, this morning's text has also been really difficult to prepare, but not so much because of the weightiness, because actually the day of the Lord is well attested throughout the scripture, but there's just, it's so much, there's so much information here, so much but then in trying to distill it down to not just what is it saying, but ultimately, what is it saying to us? What is God wanting to say to us as we look at this passage of text? Not just the way that it spoke to the original audience, although that's important, and we're going to spend a good amount of time today talking about how this text spoke to the original audience, but then ultimately, what does it say to us as the audience who are hearing this and reading this word now. And, and I really believe that God has some good things that he wants to say to us this morning in our study in Malachi as we consider this uh, disputation. I, I've told you all along as we've been studying through the book of Malachi that the book of Malachi itself is arranged around six different units that, that scholars will refer to as disputations. And the reason they use that language, because you may think, what is a disputation? Well, you know what a dispute is, right? When, when you disagree with something or you dispute something, like you ever get a, a, charge on, a charge on your credit card and you realize that I didn't do this, like I, I, wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't in London uh, on a dating service. That's one that actually happened to me once. There was like an, an, an online dating service uh, in, in London and the charge was made on, on my church credit card nonetheless. <laughs> and, 
You know, so you see those things and, and you dispute that. You say, no, that wasn't me. There's a process that you go through and a disputation, right? You're disputing something. Well, essentially what you have in, in these disputations in the book of Malachi are a series of messages that Malachi, the messenger of the Lord, is delivering to the Judah, the, the, the children of, of Judah. And as he's doing this with each of these, there's a pattern where the Lord makes a statement. He makes a charge against Judah and then Judah responds, or at least it supposes a certain response. And then the Lord answers that response and delivers a word. And often it's a word of judgment or a word, a word pointing to some coming kind of judgment. And we see that even in this particular text that we're going to read. So let's read together. We're starting in chapter 2, verse 17. Now, you understand, of course, that the chapter and verse arrangement of uh, Bible books is not inspired, right? I mean, that when the original author sat down and wrote this, it did not contain chapter and verse. That was added later as quick reference that we might find it. So here, I, I think the, the division of chapter and verse is a little bit awkward because really, if we were dividing this, we would probably start chapter 3 with chapter 2, verse 17. But nonetheless, it is what it is. And so we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 17, and then read through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now let's pause for just a moment, because essentially, here's the question, right? This is the question that that Judah is asking of the Lord. They have wearied the Lord by saying, God, where is your justice? It seems like everyone who does evil is good and everyone who does good is evil. Or in other words, you might say, God, it seems like we do good, we follow you, we obey you, and we never get ahead. We, we're, it's never enough. It seems like we're, we're never enough or what we, what we and, and maybe we can identify with that because we wrestle with that feeling today even sometimes, feeling like, God, I do all these things, I try, and it seems like when I'm trying to do what's right, when I'm trying to walk in what's right, it seems like I can't get ahead, and everybody else who doesn't seem to care about these things seems to get ahead somehow. Well, if you've ever felt that, you've ever felt that tension or wrestled with that, th those feelings, then, then this passage is speaking for you and to you today. So in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord answers, behold, and that's how we know that God is answering here, right? This is a, this word, behold, this is clearly, this is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so there's a pattern of sorts here, right? There's the question and then the answer. And so in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, Judah presents their question 
to the Lord. There's this question asking for God's justice or asking really, God, where is your justice? Where is your truth? Where are you in the midst of the, the, the perverseness, the evil, the wickedness of our day? And then we find the Lord's answer. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the Lord answers this question. And so I want us to even consider it in that, uh, in, in that, with that arrangement, if you will, of, of the question and then the answer. And you notice in your notes that I haven't left any blanks for you here in, in this. The blanks come later as we begin to take all of this and apply it. Because I want, I'm going to move through this quickly. And, and I want to just, as we move through that, I'm going to make several points along the way. And, and the points that I've given you are intended to help sort of outline the text and, and also outline the movement of thought here through the text so that we can point to these applications of how this truth that God is speaking to the children of Judah applies to us in our context. So the question is essentially, as I've mentioned already, God, how is it that this can be? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, obviously, we know that's not a truth statement, okay? We know that that is not true, but what's happened here is that in their sin... Israel has become blinded to the truth. In their sin, they have, they, their eyes are, are blinded so that they don't see things clearly. They don't understand things the way that they should. We might even say that sin has clouded their understanding or clouded their judgment so that as they are, as they are looking at what is happening around them, as they are looking at the, the nations around them, they're looking at how the, the other peoples around them prosper, though they are wicked people, though they are not God's covenant people, they would ask this question, Lord, how can this be? How can it be that others who don't honor you, who don't follow you, seem to be getting ahead? Of course, the answer will come in a minute, but first let's understand the question. The question is they they don't like what they see. Judah doesn't like what they see. They don't understand because it feels to them like, God, we're, we're supposed to be your chosen ones. And yet, it's all the other nations. It's all the people who are prospering. The issue that we, that we will see in a moment is that sin has clouded their understanding. It has blinded their eyes to see the truth. What's more, sin has caused Judah to question God. Now, it's okay to ask questions of God. It's okay to wrestle with, uh, with, with, with what the Lord is doing. It's okay. We see this throughout the Scripture, that the writers of the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and the prophets, we see that the writers question, God, how could this be? What are you doing here, Lord? How is it that you're working? And, and, and we wrestle with questions even in our own day, in our own situations. We wrestle with questions. God, how are you working? How are you going to use this? What is it that you're up to in the midst of my life and my circumstance? And sometimes we get an answer, and sometimes we get an insight into what God is doing. Sometimes we, we gain some perspective that helps us to understand, and Frankly, oftentimes we don't know. We don't understand fully because there's a perspective that we lack. There's, there's a perspective that we don't, that frankly, we can't have. It would be like if I showed you about 30 seconds of a movie and then ask you to explain to me the full plot of this movie based on the 30-second clip that you had seen. 
You wouldn't be able to do that because there's, there's much more to the story than the little bit that you, that you see and you understand. Well, that's the way it is with the Lord as well. We, we see but, but a, a portion, but a fraction of what's happening. God sees the bigger picture, the fuller picture. And so he understands with a perspective that we, that we don't have, that we can't have. And sometimes in our sin, our, our minds are clouded. And, and frankly, oftentimes the, the sin itself is the thing that is, that is, that is speaking the lie to us. That is, it's, the sin itself is the lie that we believe, the, the, the misunderstanding that we hold on to that, that tells us somehow this is fair, this would be just, this would be right. And it distorts our understanding of the truth. But God answers Judah in their questions. God answers them, behold, he says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Essentially, God is saying, you may not understand what's happening now, but there's coming a day when you will see and understand that which you don't see and understand now. And and God also says, pointedly, I'm going to send my messenger to to point the way. I'm going to send my messenger to reveal, to help you understand these things. See, the Lord promised to send a messenger to prepare the way for his coming. That's the key here. That's the key, that, that the Lord is coming. And in this sense, as Malachi is speaking this truth to Judah, he's He's speaking of a day that is to come, the coming of the Lord, the advent of the Lord. We're on the eve of the season of Advent. In fact, next Sunday will be the first Sunday in our season of Advent, the four Sundays of Advent as we look forward to Christmas and we prepare for the, the, the coming of, of Christmas, the celebration of the Christmas season. But that, that season of Advent, the word Advent itself even means the coming and as we look forward to the coming and, and, and the hope that we have in Jesus, we understand that Jesus came once for, for redemption. He came once in love, but he's coming again in judgment. And Malachi speaks to this here in this passage. But he tells us that the first thing that will happen is that the Lord will send his messenger to prepare the way. Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. The prophet Isaiah uses similar language in Isaiah chapter 40 where Isaiah speaks of the one who would, who would, a voice that would cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The gospels, all four gospels make it clear that John the Baptist is this figure, this, this messenger. In fact, you can go to Matthew chapter 3 and then again in Matthew chapter 11 and you see that Jesus speaks Uh, particularly in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is the one who's speaking and and Jesus connects the dots for us so that we're not left wondering in any way. Jesus says, this is the one who was the voice in the wilderness crying out. So Jesus tells us pointedly that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of, of Malachi speaking of the one who would come, the messenger who would come. But there's another messenger. There's another messenger that's mentioned here. There's the the messenger who will prepare the way before me, but then also Malachi speaks of the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's a, a second one who is coming here, and this, of course, is Jesus. This is pointing to the coming of Christ. 
The coming of Christ. This, the advent of Jesus. So not only does the Lord promise that He will prepare the way through His messenger, but He also promises that with His presence, He would restore righteousness. This is with the coming of Jesus. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. We, we see that fulfilled again in the Gospels. That Jesus comes into the temple on, on what we now refer to as Palm Sunday, Jesus arrives in the city of Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and we understand that he, he turns over the money changer's table and he purifies and he cleanses the temple. Again, this is, this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that with his coming, with his presence, Jesus is restoring righteousness unto his people, unto his temple and unto his people. He's the messenger of the covenant. But not only does Jesus do this in, in his first coming, but there's also, it prefigures here, it points the way to his second coming, which the Old Testament repeatedly refers to as the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord that would be coming. In fact, uh, there are so many passages of Scripture. You can go to uh, Isaiah. You can go to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, uh, Micah, uh, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of these Old Testament prophets point to the coming of the day of the Lord. Let me read to you just one example. This is, I'm going to read from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Zephaniah chapter 1. The prophet Zephaniah said, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. He goes on to speak even further about this coming day of the Lord, this day of judgment. So this theme of the day of the Lord. Malachi's audience, the children of Judah, they would have understood exactly what Malachi is speaking of here when he speaks of the coming of the messenger and the coming of this day. Who can endure the day of his coming? See, to the children of Israel, the day of the Lord was going to be a day of, of promise and a day of fulfillment because they saw themselves as God's chosen people. They saw themselves as God's chosen ones. But God sent the word through the prophets to, to show Israel that they would be judged as well because of their sins against the covenant. That they had turned their back on God. They had turned their back on His covenant with them. And so the day of judgment for them would also be a day of fear, a day to be dreaded, a day to be revered because God would make right what was wrong and broken with His coming, with His judgment. For the righteous, if there were anyone who was truly righteous, the day of judgment would be a day of deliverance. A day when God comes and deals with the brokenness, the pain, the wickedness, the hurt, the, the sin of our world. But Malachi says, who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? It's a rhetorical question, of course. But the, the obvious answer is no one. 
No one can stand against this coming day of the Lord, this coming day of judgment, because there are none who are righteous. There are none who are right before God. But to be sure, he says, he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Each of these is a picture of of how God will work to to cleanse and purify and restore and redeem that which is broken with his coming when he returns in that day, that day of judgment. And so the question was, Lord, how can these things be so? How can it be that there's all of this brokenness and that the evil seem to profit? And God's answer is, to be sure, I'm, I'm going to deal with the wickedness. I'm going to deal with sin. I will bring judgment and restore righteousness with my coming. And so you may hear all of this and you may think, okay, well, so how does this apply to me? How does this apply to my life? How do, where do I find myself or where do we find ourselves in this, this story or in this prophecy? I'm glad that you asked the question because I want to show us how this relates to us and how this applies to our lives in our context in our own day. The first point of application I think we need to see is this, is that sin distorts the way we see God and the way we see ourselves. Sin has this distorting effect on our lives so that we, when, when we're living in sin, we don't see things clearly. We don't see things the way that we should. In our sin, we think just much like what Judah cries to God or asks God here. We think that that good is bad and bad is good. We look at things that are evil and we think that somehow that will satisfy us. We look at things that that God deems to be wicked and we think, well, it's not so bad. I I can live with just a little bit of this. We look at the things that God has promised and the things that God has called us to and we think to ourselves, yeah, that's... If I really did that, if I really lived that way, if I really obeyed the Lord in that, I I would never be satisfied. I would never be happy. Sin distorts our understanding. It distorts our perception so that we don't see things the way that we should. Not only God and his truth, but also ourselves. We think less of God and his holiness. We think less of God and and his righteous Perfection, and we think more of ourselves and our fallenness. We think more of, uh, of, of our own inadequacies because sin distorts the way that we see God and the way that we see ourselves. And so we have to understand that as we, as we approach the Word of God, as we approach His truth, as we approach and, and we search for understanding, we have to admit this this basic reality that we don't see things the way that we should because sin clouds our judgment, much as it did for Judah in this story. But praise God, in spite of our sin, in spite of our, our twisted judgment, in spite of our lack of understanding and, and, and the fact that our minds are clouded in sin, God is still faithful. He's faithful to his word. In fact, his faithfulness to his word doesn't depend in any way on, on us. It doesn't depend in any way, in any way on your goodness or, or the way that you live or your understanding. Paul writes to Timothy and says that even when we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. 
that God is faithful to his word of promise. He was faithful in the word that he promised here. So that Malachi speaks of the, the two messengers that would be coming, right? The first messenger who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Well, we see that in the Gospels. John the Baptist was the one. He was the messenger. In fact, later on in chapter 4, when we get to chapter 4, verse 5, the closing verses of the book of Malachi, we're going to see this language of the, the coming of Elijah. There would be this one Elijah. And again, the Gospels, Jesus in the Gospels points to John the Baptist as this Elijah figure, this second Elijah who would come preparing the way for Christ. And so God is faithful to his word. God told Judah, I'm going to send someone as a forerunner to prepare the way. And that's what he did. Not only that, there's this, this, this promise that the Lord himself would come. The Lord himself would come suddenly to his temple. He would come unannounced. He would come unexpectedly to his temple. And he would restore righteousness. That he would make things right. And that's exactly what Jesus did. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promise. When you look at the Old Testament and you see prophecy after prophecy that point the way toward the coming of Christ, the coming Messiah. And then when you read the New Testament and you see Jesus fulfilling those prophecies again and again and again, it's a reminder to us that God is faithful to his word. He does what he says he will do. He did what he said he would do. And because God is faithful to his word, we can trust him. Not only can we trust him, we can, we can willingly and joyfully submit to his authority. Submitting to authority is, a, honestly, if we're, for us, that's a really difficult concept because we don't like to submit to anyone's authority. We want to follow our own word. We want, to, we want to be the ones in charge. We want autonomy. We want freedom. We want independence. We want the ability to choose on our own terms. But the truth of the matter is that in order to follow Christ, we, we have to surrender that autonomy. And we have to follow him. But we can follow a God who is good and faithful, faithful to his word, Faithful to his promise. And then the last point of application that's, that, that we need to understand is that our only hope for enduring the coming judgment is Jesus. The only hope that any of us have when it comes to the judgment of God is Jesus. It's Jesus. In fact, the question is asked here, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And the answer that this question begs, of course, is who? But the truth is, there's no one. There's no one who is righteous enough to withstand the coming day of judgment, the coming day of the Lord. The New Testament helps us to see this. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see this clearly. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see this with your own eyes, as it were. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Speaking of this coming judgment, we're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 10. And here we see again, this word is true, that our only hope for enduring the coming judgment is Christ, is Jesus. 
That our lives would be built on the foundation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God given to me, Paul writes, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will, be manif- will become manifest for the day. And notice that the word day there is capitalized because it's speaking of that day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But only has through fire. See, this coming day of the Lord, this coming day of judgment, will reveal things for the way that they truly are. Jump ahead to verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of God, or excuse me, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, but they're futile. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He's pointing again here to the coming day of judgment. And what he's saying is that what what this world considers to be wise, what this world considers to be true, all of it is foolishness in the eyes of God. And the judgment of the Lord will reveal that to be true. So that someday when the Lord returns and someday when God, as though by fire, burns away all this misunderstanding and this misperception and the, and the clouds ca- caused by our sin, it will be revealed in that day what is true. And the only thing that we can hope to stand on in that day is the foundation which has been laid, which is Jesus. So we must be careful that we build our lives on that foundation of truth, that we trust in Christ for faith, by faith, for salvation, that we, that we, that we look to him, not in ourselves, that, that we don't believe the lie that we tell ourselves that says, I have a better way. I know what is right. I know what is good. I can be trusted. My judgment can be trusted. But instead that we would, that we would understand that sin distorts our understanding. It clouds our judgment. It twists the truth. And in order to see things clearly, we must Look to the Lord who is faithful to His Word, who has given us His his revealed Word, the Bible, that we may know that truth, that we may build our lives on it and stand on this truth, which is Jesus. You see, just as Malachi points to, Jesus was coming into the world to restore righteousness, but also Jesus will be coming again in another day of judgment. And in that day of judgment, when he restores ultimately, in in an ultimate sense, in his justice, God will ultimately answer every question that, that we've had. And in that coming day of judgment, in his justice, God will restore righteousness. And in that day of judgment, in his justice, God will 
will deliver judgment, ultimate judgment against sin. Who can stand against that day of judgment? Only those who have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. Only those who have surrendered their lives to him by faith. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Has there ever been that moment in your life when you have turned to him by faith, saying, Lord, I understand that sin has has, has distorted my judgment. It's distorted my understanding. It's twisted the truth in my eyes. But God, I, I look to you. I confess my sin. And I surrender my life to you. And and have you asked him to refine you, to purify you by cleansing you, by forgiving your sin so that you might stand against his coming judgment? If that that has never taken place in your life, then I would encourage you that you would make today the day that you surrender your life to Jesus. Today the day that you prepare yourself for this coming day of judgment. By yielding control of your life, by submitting to his divine authority, by surrendering your life to him. In a moment when we move into a time of response, our staff will be here at the front. And and we would love nothing more than to pray with you and walk you through a a prayer of surrender whereby you would surrender your life to the Lord. Where you would say, God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I understand that sin has wrecked my life. But I also recognize that you died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. Jesus, would you come in my life? Forgive me of my sin. I, I confess you as Lord, as Savior of my life. And today, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, to confess him as Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you to come as we sing that, that song of response, that song of surrender. Maybe you're here today and you recognize that in, in some way or another, you're still struggling with sin and the way that sin distorts the truth, can I encourage you today that if there's, if there's a sin that you've been holding on to, a sin that you have habitually fallen into its grasp again and again, that you would be reminded today that there's hope in Jesus, there's deliverance in Jesus. And if you would surrender your life to him, if you would yield control of your heart to him, that he has the power to refine, to purify, to cleanse, and make you new. And so as we sing a song of invitation in a moment when we sing, our altar will be open. If you want to come and and just in that moment surrender to Jesus or in that moment just uh, confess your sin to Him and acknowledge your need for His truth to penetrate through the the haze, the cloud that, that distorts your understanding, then we would encourage you that you would you would use this as your moment to respond to him and respond to his truth today. I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me as we, as we pray. And even as we pray together, we want to ask that God would, would speak to us and, and his Holy Spirit would move in our hearts that we might respond rightly to his truth this morning. Lord, we are so grateful that we can face the coming day of judgment by surrendering control of our lives to you, by yielding to your ultimate authority. Lord, we're, we're grateful that you have made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. Our wrongs paid for by your work on the cross. And so as we look to you now, Lord, we, 
we ask that you would give us sound judgment. Help us to see clearly as we see through this lens of your truth, your word of truth. And move in our hearts and our minds that we might trust in you and your faithfulness and we might live for that day, as it were, the coming day of judgment. So move among us, we ask now. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to stand together this morning, and as we sing this song of invitation, if God is speaking to you, and I want to encourage you to respond in this moment. Again, our staff will be here at the front, ready to pray with you, ready to receive you. Our altar is open if you want to come and kneel here in prayer this morning. But however God is speaking, however He's moving, I want to encourage you that you would respond this morning as we sing our response.